0: بسم الله <تصفيق> <تصفيق> إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مُضلَ له ومن يضل فلا هاديَ له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Today then we'll resume from where we left off, and that was the chapter regarding the manners of the Prophet So we'll start from the beginning of that chapter, and then uh, after recapping, carry on from where we left off. The beginning of the chapter had mentioned, "Kana Rasulullah ﷺ ashja' al-nas." That the Prophet was from the most courageous of the people. He was from the most courageous of the people. Qala Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu kunna idah mar al Bas wa laqiya al kaumul kaum ittaqaina bi rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said that when the battle would become fierce, when the battle would become fierce, and the people encountered the enemy, we would find shelter in the messenger or with the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And it is mentioned that his courage is something that is well known. The courage of the Prophet ﷺ was well known. He stood alone against his people in Mecca who were idol worshippers. That's an example clearly. In the early stages of Islam, there were very few Muslims. And yet the Prophet ﷺ in the face of all of the opposition... All of the mushrikun, the idol worshippers from his own family members, his uncles, he stood firm and stood courageous upon al-Islam and then calling to Islam. Even though they were constantly threatening to banish him, to kill him. And it got to a level where the first hijrah ended up occurring where the Prophet ﷺ told some of his companions to head out, to leave Mecca, because the oppression of the Kuffar was so great, to leave out and go to Habasha, where it was known that there was a just ruler, the Najashi. And it's mentioned also, he stood alone in front of his enemies on many occasions, such as in the season of Hajj and other examples. So all of this is a proof for the courage of the Prophet ﷺ, and that he had absolute trust and reliance in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's because courage is based upon your trust in Allah, your reliance and your dependence and your trust in Allah your iman in Allah, the stronger that is, then your ability in courage occurs, the more your courage will be, the more you have of that iman and trust in Allah. As for a person who is weak in his iman and trust and dependence in Allah, then what type of courage is that person going to have? So this is because courage is based on trust in Allah, reliance upon Allah, Belief in Him and believing in His promise. Having belief in the promise of Allah. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives victory to the believers and gives victory to the righteous. And when He migrated to Medina, then after that the wars began. There were wars that occurred after the migration to Medina. And they were between the Muslims and the pagans, the Mushrikun. And again, he showed his courage in those battles. For example, in the Battle of Badr and in the Battle of Uhud. In the Battle of Uhud, it is even mentioned that he was injured, that he was struck on his helmet and that his tooth broke and that he fell down into a pit that occurred in the path of battle against the disbelievers. So, he, his trust was based upon his uh, uh, reliance and belief and iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then also it mentions, Wakana أَصْخَ النَّاسِ مَا سُئِلَ شَيْءًا قَطُّ فَقَالَ لَا that he was the most generous of the people too. Another characteristic. He was from the most, or he was the most generous of the people. He would never say no, when something was requested of him. When somebody asked something from him, of him, then he would not refuse them, and he would not say no. And he was also, كَانَ the most forbearing of the people, the one who was most patient upon things, most forbearing about things. And that forbearance, it is to have patience and refrain from taking someone into account when they oppose you. And it is upon those who call to the way of Allah. To adorn themselves with this characteristic, meaning those who are involved in da'wah, then they need to have this characteristic of forbearance, being patient with the people, not losing it with the people, being patient upon what they do, how they do. If you are calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you need to call the people with your mannerisms and etiquettes too, not just what you say to them, but how you behave with them. So the da'i, or the people involved in da'wah, then they need to have this characteristic of forbearance, of patience in the path of da'wah. Then it also mentions, <laughs> that he was shy, shy, More shy than a virgin in seclusion. He never stared anyone in the face. And that example of a virgin in seclusion is a proverb used by the Arabs to describe shyness. Because it is expected of a girl who is a virgin, that she be shy. That this would be her characteristic. But as... So as the young girl reaches adolescence, she becomes shy, such that she avoids her father and her brothers and remains alone in her room. This is something which may occur. And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Al-hayaa ya'ti illa bi Shyness does not bring anything except goodness. Shyness brings goodness. The only exception that the scholar sometimes mention is When seeking knowledge When seeking knowledge You should not allow your shyness To prevent you from seeking knowledge You should not allow shyness To stop you from asking questions Aisha she praised the women of the Ansar Saying how good they are because they don't let their shyness prevent them from learning about their religion. Normally shyness as we see here, it is good to have that shyness in your character, but not when it comes to seeking knowledge, meaning don't allow shyness to prevent you from seeking knowledge and asking. Aisha said, al Ansar. How good are the women of the Ansar? لَمْ يَكُنْ يَمْنَعْهُنَّ حياؤهن مِنْ أَنْ يَسْأَلْنَا عَنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِنَّ That their shyness did not prevent them from asking about the affairs of their religion. Their shyness would not prevent them. So they would go and ask about the affairs of ibadah, about the affairs of worship. They would go and ask about the period and the menstrual blood and it gets on your clothes, and how to wash it, and these things, they would go and ask, and they would find out, because these affairs are linked, to your worship to Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and a person needs to know, precisely and accurately, how to worship Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then it mentions, كَانَ لَا يَنْتَقِمُ لِنَفْسِهِ Another characteristic now, that he never, ever used to seek revenge for himself. It was never about getting revenge for something somebody had done to him. It was never about revenge for himself. وَلَا لَهَا And he would never get angry because of himself that somebody's done something to him personally he wouldn't seek revenge for personal reasons or get angry for personal reasons somebody's done something to him specifically he would not seek revenge on those types of affairs nor would he get angry on those affairs إِلَّا أَن تُنْتَهَكَ اللَّهِ فَيَكُونُ لِلَّهِ يَنْتَقِمُ وَإِذَا لِلَّهِ لَمْ يَقُمْ لِغَضَبِهِ أحد. The only time that he would go out in pursuit of somebody over an affair, or get angry with somebody over an affair, would be if the affair was linked to the rights of Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. If the rights of Allah were violated, then he would seek revenge for the sake of Allah. But if his own rights were violated, then he would not go out seeking revenge or be angered for his own personal rights. But the rights of Allah, if they were violated, then he would go to seek the revenge for the sake of Allah and to deal with those matters for the sake of Allah. And so if he got angry for the sake of Allah, because something has been violated of the rights of Allah, then it's mentioned nobody could intercede with him. Nobody could say anything to him then in those situations. If he became angry because the rights of Allah have been violated. وَالْقَرِيبُ وَالْبَعِيدُ وَالْقَوِيِّ وَالضَّعِيفُ عِندَهُ فِي الْحَقِّ وَاحِدٍ And another one of his characteristics, that relatives and strangers, the strong and the weak, no matter who you were, everybody was equal to the Prophet ﷺ in regards to their rights. Everybody was equal to the Prophet ﷺ in regards to their rights. It's even mentioned in some of the narrations how when some of the Jews used to get into an argument with some of the Muslims, the Jews would say, we'll go to get someone to judge in this dispute between us, we'll go to the Prophet, your Prophet Muhammad. The Jew would say that. He's got an argument with a Muslim, and he's saying to him, we'll go to your Prophet Muhammad, and we'll tell him what happened, he'll judge. Because they knew of the characteristic of the Prophet Wasallam. That he was upon absolute justice in every affair he would not deceive nor lie or be biased absolute justice in how he behaved with the people, and so it's mentioned that his relatives and the strangers, the strong and the weak, they were all equal to him regarding their rights. Another characteristic now mentioned wama. إِنْ إِشْتَهَاهُ wa وَإِنْ لَمْ That he never ever criticized food. Uh, bear in mind all of these characteristics of the Prophet wasallam We're not just reading them for the sake of reading them. We're going through them so that we ponder over them, and then practice these characteristics in our behavior and our manners. So here it mentions, he never criticized food. That's something so many people fall into, without even thinking. That you sit there and you say, that, that wasn't good, that was this, that was that, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, this was too much of this, it was too much of that, that was horrible, that was this. How often people do that when they talk about food? And the Prophet ﷺ never criticized food. If he liked it, he ate it. And if he didn't want it, he would just leave it. Not criticize this, that, wrong, bad. If he didn't want it, he didn't like it, he would just leave it aside, And he wouldn't eat it. But he wouldn't sit there criticizing it, this food, this, this food, that. And that's a big mistake many Muslims they fall into without even thinking or realizing. Uh, وَكَانَ لَا يَأْكُلُ مُتَّكِئًا this is another thing now. And many of these things are mentioned in hadith as well. Many of these characteristics of the Prophet wasallam are mentioned in hadith. This is another one. That he would never eat reclining. That when you eat, you shouldn't be sitting back lying down eating. You shouldn't be lying down eating, lying on your side, lying back on the chair, or back on the sofa... He never used to lie back relaxing and eating like that. He don't eat in that way. He would sit and eat upright. It's a mistake people lying back and eating all on the sofa at home, lying down and having something. You shouldn't be reclining like that in that position when you're eating. So it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ would not recline when eating. It's also mentioned, لا <laughs> يأكل Oh, al-Khiwan. That he would never eat. He never ate on something elevated. Basically, these days your table. That he wouldn't eat on a table. Something elevated off the ground to put the food on. These days basically our tables or something that resembles these tables that we have. That he never ate on something like that of a table. Um it's actually mentioned in a hadith, in Sahih al-Bukhari, of Anas, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam never ate upon some elevated thing like that, like a table, how we call it now, until he died. So that's something mentioned about him too. Wala yamtani'a min mubah. That, another characteristic, he would not prevent himself from the permissible things. Something which is permissible, it's permissible. He wouldn't stop himself, prevent himself from the permissible. In If he found a date, he would eat it. وَإِنْ وَجَدَ خُبْزًا And if he found bread, he would eat it. وَإِنْ وَجَدَ شَوَاءً Akala. And if he found meat, like roast meat, then he would eat it. And if he found wheat or barley, then he would eat it. وَإِنْ وَجَدَ And if he had just milk, then he would suffice with just that milk. So this is how the Prophet ate. There were, so like we said, he never criticized food there were certain foods that he didn't eat. There were certain foods that the Prophet ﷺ would not eat for specific reasons. So for example, he would not eat garlic or onions. And when he was asked about that, he said, "Inni unaji مَنْ لَا تُنَاجِي That indeed I converse or call upon with those who you do not converse or call upon. And he used to converse with the angels. He used to converse with the angels, and the angels are irritated by the smell of onions and garlic. Another time, he was presented with a roasted lizard. He was presented with a roasted lizard in the presence of Khalid ibn al-Walid. And so he said, لم يكن بأرض قومي. He said, that is not something that we find amongst the people of my land. That is not something that we find amongst the people of my land. So in that statement, you're indirectly saying, that I I don't want to eat that. But you've said it in a way, that's not something we're accustomed to. It's not something found amongst our people. And you've indirectly said, I don't want to eat that. Rather than saying, that's this, that's that, I don't want to eat it. But just to make this kind of comment, that it's not something we know about where we live, we don't really eat that where we live. A comment like that, just to indicate you don't want that. Rather than criticizing the food, or saying it's not good, or it's this or it's that, I can't take the taste of this or that. People say these days, you don't speak like that regarding food. Also, it's mentioned From his characteristics. أَكَلَ الْبِطِّيخِ بِالْرَّطَبِ That he would eat watermelon with fresh dates. He would eat the watermelon with fresh dates. الْبِطِّيخِ typically refers to watermelons. I think your translations say melons. Uh, We usually refer to melons as the what color ones green so the yellow, you've been buying the raw ones you've been getting conned by the shopkeepers the yellow ones we normally call them melons the green ones with the red inside we call the watermelons but normally in Arabic they refer to the red one with the, uh, the green outside and red inside the watermelon so he would eat the watermelon with fresh dates and كان يحب He used to love sweets and honey. Here it is mentioned as well that what is intended by the melon, by the beteekh, is cantaloupe. Cantaloupe? Anybody? See, homework is to bring a picture of a cantaloupe next week. Somebody get it on their Google now, let's see. A cantaloupe. We need to see. Cantaloupe. is it a type of a long melon or something? Yeah, basically. But let's have a look at the picture. So we all understand exactly what is meant by the Prophet ﷺ having this melon, watermelon, cantaloupe with dates. It is mentioned here, it was a cantaloupe. So what is that? Let's have a look. So everybody can see. Picture of a cantaloupe. Uh huh. Anybody else? Everybody got the same pictures. So everybody seen that now. Check your phones afterwards. The cantaloupe. That it is referring to the cantaloupe. That is what the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, used to have with the fresh dates. And the, it's mentioned here that it's not the normal batir that the Arabs refer to typically these days. Which is the green one with the red inside. So it's highlighted in the notes here that it's the cantaloupe, not the normal watermelon. So make a note of that. It is the cantaloupe, not the normal watermelon. Uh, and it is not the small sweet cantaloupe either. In those days, the cantaloupes, is that how you pronounce it? The cantaloupes were bigger and bitter. So he ate them with dates, so the sweetness of the fresh dates would contrast with the bitterness of that melon type of thing, the cantaloupe, that he would eat in those days as it's mentioned. Then, قال Abu Hurairah, Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu said, sallallahu رَسُولُ اللَّهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا وَلَمْ يَشْبَعْ مِنْ خُبْزِ الشَّعِيرِ That the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Left this world, died Without satisfying his hunger Even with barley bread Without satisfying his hunger Even with barley bread And this was due to The fact that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Distanced himself from the luxuries of the world Not because he didn't have it That was available, he could eat that But he wasn't bothered with those affairs and the food and filling his stomach and he wasn't bothered with those affairs. Because Allah, as we mentioned last time, gave him the choice to either be a prophet king or a messenger slave of Allah. It's mentioned that Abu Hurairah Anhu said, جلس جبريل إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فنظر إلى السماء فإذا ملك ينزل فقال جبريل إن هذا الملك ما نزل منذ يوم خلق قبل الساعة فلما نزل قال يا محمد أرسلني إليك ربك قال آف ملكا نبيا يجعلك أو عبدا رسولا أفملك النبي يجعلك أو عبدا رسولا قَالَ جِبْرِيلَ تَوَاضَعْ لِرَبِّكَ يَا مُحَمَّدْ قَالَ Balabdan Rasula. It's mentioned that Jibreel was sat with the Prophet and looked at the sky. And he saw an angel coming down. Jibreel said, This angel has not come down ever since he was created up until now. So when he came down, this angel said to Muhammad, O Muhammad, your Lord has sent me to you, and he asks, Shall he make you a prophet king, or a messenger slave? Jibril said, Be humble before your Lord, O Muhammad. And the prophet said, A messenger slave. So great amounts of wealth and food would come to him. But... He would give it away in the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it's also mentioned, وَكَانَ يَأْتِي عَلَىٰ آلِ مُحَمَّدِ أَشْهَرْ وَالشَّهْرَانِ لَا Baytin فِي بَيْتٍ مِن بُيُوتِهِ نَا وَكَانَ قُوتُهُمُ التَّمَر ma That sometimes a month or two would pass by, and not a fire would be lit in any of the households of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu meaning no fire was ever lit in their homes, they weren't cooking any food. There was no food to cook. That's the meaning of no fire was ever lit in their homes for two months. No cooked food for two months. And their food was just dates and water. Nothing to cook, no meat, no nothing. Dates and water. So the Prophet... Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam gave his wives a choice between the worldly pleasures or Allah and his messenger. All of them chose Allah and his messenger. Thus, his wives were patient with his uh, ascetic lifestyle just as he was patient. So all of them, the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, similarly upon that humble lifestyle, absolute, modest, and humble lifestyle, just as the Prophet was upon. يَأْكُلُ الْهَدِيَّةِ وَلَا يَأْكُلُ صَدَقَةِ وَيُكَافِئُ al-hadiyya That he would eat food that he was given as a gift. He would eat the food he was given as a gift, but he would never eat from charity food. He would eat food given to him as a gift, but he wouldn't eat from charity. When he was given a gift, he would also give something back in return. If given a gift, he would also reply with a gift to that person or people. لا في مأكل ولا ملبس. From the characteristics of the Prophet also, he would not wear luxurious garments Or eat luxurious food. He would not eat luxurious food or luxurious garments. So nowadays, again, the people need to have a think about these things. A person goes out to a fancy restaurant, paying for his family of four, paying a hundred pounds for that meal at the fancy restaurant. A hundred pounds. 80 pounds, 120 pounds for a meal at a fancy restaurant. Is it really needed? Is it necessary? A person needs to think about those things, where he's spending his money on. It's halal. A person wants, he has money, he has wealth, he fulfills the rights of Allah, you can do it. But a person, always saying is, a person stops to think, do you really need to do some of these things? Do you really need to have a meal worth 200 pounds, one meal? You go to the takeaways here in Leeds, burger and chips, 99p. You don't really need to spend so much on luxuries of the world. So it's mentioned here that the Prophet never went into luxury with garments or food. Garments is the other thing, even more than food possibly. How the people... They buy their trainers and their clothes and other things for extortionate amounts of money. Money that doesn't need to be paid for that amount of it. Even if a person says, but the quality is better, it'll last longer. There'll be other items of similar quality last a similar time. They just haven't got the brand name. And they'll last you the same amount of time too. So a person needs to reflect on his spending and from the, the blessing that Allah has given you with your wealth what you do with that wealth, where you spend it, what you do. In the days when we were living in Medina, in the University of Medina students, they used to give us, uh, approximately works out, 120 pounds a month. That's what they used to give us. 30 pounds a week. So you live off 30 pounds a week. That's what we used to have. That's what they used to give us. <coughs> Roughly thereabouts, it was like 700, 50 800 riyals, Maybe 130, 140 maximum. It works out something like that. Pounds, British pounds. So then you live off that. That's that's what you spend. And not even that. The reality is that money that was given to you, that 120, 130, 140 British pounds equivalent of, you need to save the majority of that for your books. Because you got to buy books. If you're a serious student, you have to have your personal library. And when we say personal library, we're talking a library the size of this room. That's what you're expected to have if you're a serious student. So then, to buy a library the size of this room, it's going to cost you not hundreds, thousands of pounds. To fill up a library with shelves the size of this room is thousands of pounds. So then you've got to save from that money. You're only therefore going to have nowhere near 30, 40 pounds a week. You're going to have like 10 pounds, 20 pounds a week to spend. That's your food, That's your clothes, washing, whatever you need to do, all your bits and bobs. That's how you survive. So there was no such thing as going out and buying some luxury item of trainers for 200 pounds. There was no such thing as going out and buying luxury jackets or coats or whatever. You live a humble lifestyle. Because you don't have anything more than that. There were students, some of them, you would run out of that money. Before the next bunch came, every month they'd give it to you. So then you have to survive off the minimum amount. Survive off just uh, the adas, lentils. Lentil soup. You get lentil soup. They used to sell it for 12p or something. A bowl of lentil soup. And you get one piece of naan bread they used to sell for 12p. So 24p, big naan bread, bowl of lentil soup. There's your meal, 24p or something, 25p. So you have to maybe have that every day. That's all you're going to eat. Sometimes the shawarma. They would sell that for like 25p. So bad for your health. Having that shawarma every day, having that meat like that, the way it was made. They even used to tell us. They used to tell us, you know, you don't want to know how we make this stuff. But that's how it is. And then you you eat that. That's all you have to eat. Sometimes you have to survive off sandwiches. Cucumber in the sandwich, nothing else. No marmalade, no uh, butter even on it. Dry bread with cucumbers. And you're eating that for maybe a week because you got nothing else, no money to buy anything else. Some of the people used to see them, some of the students, that they have their lunch and you buy some chicken and you have it. And then one piece of the chicken, they'd save it. Tiny piece of chicken to start with. Have a little bit of the meat, that little leg, just save that leg, take it home with you, and have that in the evening. So when you when you get used to that type of thing, then your mentality about how you do and what you do and what you spend on changes. We used to survive. I remember one time, two thobes. Used to have two thobes, so you wear one thobe for a week. Forget about this. I'm washing it every day and changing it every day. That doesn't exist over there. So you wear the thobe for a week. From Friday, you put it on new thobe. Jum'ah, Friday, you put it on. Carry on till the next Thursday. And by that Thursday, it needs washing, washing. So then on Friday, you put your new on, the second one. The new one. And then in that week, you're going to wash your first one, wash it, clean, put it out, iron it, so it's ready for next Friday. Because by that time, your other one's going to be completely dirty. Alternate like that. If anything ever happened to one of your thobes, then you're in big trouble. Then you've got to go find, get another one or something. But this is how it was. Many of the students, many of the students, this is how it used to be. You live simple, simple lives like that. The rooms we used to have, 8 foot, 9 foot by about 6 foot, 7 foot. That's how big the room used to be. Imagine what that is, it's the tiny corner of the room. Like when you do i'tikaf, when you do i'tikaf, that size, that's how big our rooms were. That's what you live in. Your bed is in there, your your small desk is in there, your wardrobe, whatever you got in that small room, like the size of i'tikaf and you see people doing it in the mosque. That size space. So you get used to a humble lifestyle. Students have to when you're there. And that's why anybody applying and thinking of applying, you need to have the right mindset. Don't be like Westerners, mashallah, luxury and this and that and everything else. And you go out there, you need to have the mindset of a student of knowledge. Have the mindset you're going to be living with some difficulty. It's not like the the home you're here now, big, relaxed, open, go out. You're going to be in some difficulty, some hardship, but that's what comes with seeking knowledge. And it helps you in your seeking of knowledge. To live simple like that. To live simple rather than luxury and big things and money. That takes you away from studying. So it mentions here that the Prophet wasallam, lived a simple life like that. And his wife similarly, he would not engage in expensive clothes or expensive food. He would eat whatever he had and he would wear whatever he had. Reminds me even of a sheikh al-ethaimin, rahimahullah ta'ala. They say if his thobe ever tore, he would get a needle himself and sew it up himself. A sheikh If he got a tear in his thobe, it wouldn't be like nowadays. It's torn, khalas throw it away, get a new one. He would get the needle and and, and uh, thread, and he would sew it up himself. So this is what's mentioned of that simplicity. That does not mean, because people often confuse their things, it doesn't mean that you dress like a pauper on purpose. Allah SWT loves that you be upon beautification, and you should be upon beautification. But being upon beautification does not mean you have to be luxurious. doesn't mean you have to waste money. You spend accordingly to have the nice decent garments accordingly, without luxurious spending. That is the point. Then after that, it's also mentioned, the last point we'll mention for today, fi uh, fi That he would also visit the sick, whether they were Muslim or non-Muslim, such as the young Jewish boy that he visited when he became ill. So we know of that story when one time, there was a young Jewish boy, he used to help the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa used to serve the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and then he got ill, dying on his deathbed, the young Jewish boy, Jewish. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa went to visit him. Whilst that boy was dying on his deathbed, about to die, So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, whilst the boy is on his deathbed, last moments, said to him, become a Muslim, accept Islam, accept the Shahadatayn, Telling him there, the last moment on his deathbed, the boy was young, his father Jewish, was stood there too. So when the Prophet was telling the boy to become Muslim, the boy, the first thing in his mind was, what's my father gonna say to this? Jewish they are. What's my father going to think about me accepting Islam? So the first thing the boy did was, look to his father, to see the reaction of his father. The reaction of his father was, أَطِع Al Qasim." He said, Obey Abu Abu Al-Qasim, the Prophet And so the boy accepted Islam and died upon Islam. And so the Prophet wasallam said, Alhamdulillah by the one Uh, by Allah who saved you via me that you accepted the shahada and died upon Islam so he would visit the sick whether they were Muslim or non-Muslim it's an opportunity for for the one who is capable of doing so that's where we'll round off on tonight the second part of the manners of the Prophet we'll do next week there's a second part to it yet the chapter is only half done the rest of this chapter the second half we'll do next week uh, to finish off the manners of the Prophet. Any questions or anything there before we round off then? So, uh, did you say uh, Batikh is not watermelon? Sorry? The, the yes, yeah, so what we're saying is the Batikh in the language these days, if you say Batikh, typically it refers to the watermelon. The watermelon, green outside, red inside. That's the normal usage of it. That's what we said first. But then, it highlights in the notes of Shaykh Muhammad al-Aqil, that actually what's meant at the time of the Prophet in these narrations about the teikh, is the cantaloupe. So what we're saying is, it's the cantaloupe, and the bitter type in those days, not the sweet ones we get now, that the Prophet used to have uh, with the sweet dates. The cantaloupe, not the watermelon. Make a correction to that, that note, that point. eating on a table is permissible. It's permissible to eat on a table, but it's mentioned from the characteristics of the Prophet wasallam, from his modesty, his humbleness, he would eat on the floor. He wouldn't eat raised up, a chair, table, all these things. So to do it is allowed. It's not haram to eat on a table on chairs. It's allowed. But that is from the characteristics of the Prophet sallallahu and it's mentioned by some scholars. It's better to sit on the floor and, uh, and eat like that and lay it out Rather than on tables and chairs and things. I have a question. Uh, there's a group of people, there's non Muslims and Muslims. And if you shake hands with Muslims, you'd to shake hands with Muslims? You can do so. For the sake of the da'wah, if, if they are just there with the Muslims, you've brought them along for da'wah, etc. So you come in, you give salaams to all the Muslims. To just shake the hand, how are you doing, etc. To the kuffar who are there now, they're there because of the Muslims, I brought them for da'wah, etc. It's okay. <coughs> You, you you don't initiate salam upon a kafir, but if the kafir says it to you, you can say wa alaik and upon you. But you don't initiate a salam upon the kafir because you know it's a kafir. But just to give the greeting for the the da'wah and things, that's okay. You wouldn't want to just greet the Muslims and not acknowledge the kuffar. That doesn't uh, give them any da'wah in that way. Then. And what are the ways to uh, prevent Muslims the whisperings of shaitan what are the ways to prevent it one of the biggest ways to prevent it is to cover it up by using your time with something else and what is the something else the dhikr of Allah the more a person does the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala du'as in the morning in the evening there are so many du'as the the fortress of the muslim check how many different du'as there are you are supposed to do in the morning after the prayers in the evening If a person stuck by all of those du'as every day, that would knock out a large proportion of whisperings. Whisperings when you're not doing any dhikr, you're not doing nothing, no Qur'an, no du'as, no nothing. Then all that's left is what? Empty space for the shaitan to come and do what he wants. So fill that space with remembrance of Allah regularly throughout the day. It stops any spare space for the shaitan to come in. So we'll round off on that then. We'll carry on next week at 7 p.m. inshaAllah ta'ala.